Hello, I'm Jake Morecambe. I'm Ellen Lee Beta. Welcome to Think Sustainability on 2SCR, where we look at practical solutions for a better planet. Okay, so one of the stories that we're doing today is about something called permaculture. Okay, do you, do you actually know what it is? Okay, mm, do I sound a bit ignorant if I say no? I don't know, because I think when I went into going to do this story, I'm like, oh, I already know what it is. But then I thought about it. I, I, I didn't actually know. But if you break it down, permaculture, permanent culture or permanent agriculture, right. essentially. Okay, so I'm guessing it means a sort of agriculture that is sustainable, that keeps going on and on and on. Yeah, self-thriving, essentially, self-sufficient agriculture. Uh, and the story that we're doing on permaculture today is about a community in Zimbabwe using permaculture. Permaculture in Zimbabwe. I feel this is going to be a great dinner party story. <laughs> Very much. And another story coming up. You know that saying where you have either a brain for smarts or a brain for arts? Like oh. you, you can't you can't really have both. <laughs> I think we're both arts people. Both arts people trying to come off as a brain for smarts. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, you're going to hear about an interesting story about melding the two worlds together. Brain for smarts, brain for arts in the world of fashion. Fashion. But coming up first... I thought it was scary. Uh, I thought the music, you can still remember the music from yeah. it. Uh, it's, it's scary. It was a very effective film. It was a great story. Uh, but I was worried about the impact it would have on people's enjoyment. And, and you often hear people saying, ever since they saw Jaws, they were terrified of going in the, in the ocean. And I think that's the great shame of it. It seems like a silly question to ask, but by nature, are sharks aggressive? No, they're not. They're not. Um, I've been, for example, diving while, while researching at a place called Seal Rocks, just north of Port Stephens. This is Bill Gladstone. He's the head of the School of Life Sciences at the University of Technology, Sydney. And on one dive we went in, I, I settled on the bottom and I counted 52 sharks circling around me. And they weren't aggressive at all. They were just peacefully swimming around. However, if you were frightened of sharks or believed the stories of sharks always being aggressive and, and man-eating, it would be potentially terrifying. But it wasn't. It was awe-inspiring to, to be surrounded by so many large sharks and for them not to be aggressive. Or you might be scared if you've watched 50 shark movies over your lifetime. Yeah, that's right. And, and, and not known that those shark movies are portraying behaviours that sharks rarely do. It's funny because there are so many films like that throughout history that I guess put the shark as this apex predator which it is but it's incredibly aggressive and always will go after humans and even there's a movie that's come out recently like in the past couple of weeks or so yeah, it's like shallows. the shallows it's yes. like i thought i thought that we weren't making films like that anymore yeah i guess it makes dramatic cinema it's scary it's frightening um some of them are bu visually beautiful um and audiences like to be frightened 
and and it also fits our stereotype of of sharks being aggressive predators um, and it's another thing for us to be frightened of when which a lot of people like having something to be frightened of it doesn't mean that in certain instances sharks can't be dangerous towards humans exactly and and we know there are records of shark attacks that are that are sometimes fatal um, but compared to the number of times that people enter the ocean every day of the year the risk of of an interaction that that leads to an injury or a fatality is very low and there's only a very few num- few species of sharks that are responsible for for the fatal attacks that we see right then the meeting has officially come to order let us all say the pledge i now a nice shark not a mindless eating machine if i am to change this image i must first change myself fish are friends not food. It's funny as well because now you also have ridiculous shark films like Sharknado or all these, like, I don't know, they're so hyperbolized yeah. in, in their fiction. Do you think that represents a cultural shift in the same way that maybe we are progressing towards just being more aware of what they actually are? Yeah, I think so. I think it's almost become uh, comedy, almost turned into comedy and farce rather than than fiction and horror films as as jaws was originally and i think i think that maybe a maybe a good thing that people can actually sit back and laugh at it um, and get taken up by the by the journey of that that film rather than actually taking it on board and saying well still yeah sharks are still terrible i think the underlying change has been there in people's attitudes towards sharks which i think also mirrors a broader change in people's concern about the environment What would it look like without sharks or if we start to cull sharks, how would our ecosystems in the ocean change? There's actually a few good examples. Well, they're not good, they're, they're actually quite sad examples of what happens when you take apex predators out of ecosystems. And in a number of fisheries around the world where sharks have been fished out to below the levels that are needed to sustain the food webs, you've, there have been drastic changes in the ecosystems where other species come to dominate. And in one example, numbers of stingrays in the ecosystems went up which in turn affected the food organisms that they would normally prey on. So the whole ecosystem changed in its character just by virtue of taking the sharks out. Where was this exactly? There's one of South there's a couple of examples of South America and in the Atlantic as well, where it's been well documented through time, through lots of fisheries surveys, that how fisheries and the ecosystem have changed when you take out the apex predators of the of sharks. What do you say to the research that's out there that the moving forward progression in climate change is warming the waters and bringing sharks in or changing their habitats and bringing them closer to shore? Is there validity in that research? It's an interesting idea and and I think it has it's worth testing out. We don't have any firm data to support that. Um, because sharks' behaviour is affected by by so many things. It's affected by the the conditions in the water, as you mentioned, by temperature. But it's affected, but that makes an effect because that potentially affects the food that they eat. The small fish that they they prey on may change their behaviour in response to to weather conditions or climate conditions, and the sharks will respond to that um, by changing their behaviour so that they're getting the food they need. 
What's something about sharks or like something that you as a marine biologist know, but the standard person would be like, whoa, I had no idea about that. I'm, one of the things that fascinates and intrigues me about sharks is their ability to navigate. Now, Port Jackson sharks, are they're harmless, they're docile, they don't grow to more than a little over a metre in length, but this time of the year in winter, they migrate onto the coastal areas to breed. And what we did was we tagged a large number of them on the central coast, and we recorded where we tagged them. So we actually had a map of the reef where we tagged each shark. And then we would follow their movements and see when they returned to that reef. And lo and behold, one of the tagged sharks was picked up by a fisherman in Bass Strait. Mm. So the shark had migrated from, in this case the study was on the central coast, from the central coast down to Bass Strait over a couple of months once the breeding season had ended. And the fisherman put the shark back in the water and lo and behold, it came back to exactly the same spot on the reef where we had tagged it 12 months later. Mm. So an animal that is as primitive as a Port Jackson shark that's been around for hundreds of millions of years, it's got a very tiny brain, um, has the ability to navigate over huge distances, thousands of kilometres, and find its way back to exactly the same site on the reef, the same hole where we tagged it 12 months ago is amazing to me. It's funny It's funny because sometimes without a map, we can't even navigate where we're on land. That's right. We need Google Maps to find out where we want to go, you know, even down the street. Yeah. But these creatures are, are using some ability, some sense that they have that we don't completely understand yet, um, to a really fine level of detail. Bill Gladstone, head of the School of Life Sciences at the University of Technology, Sydney. You're listening to Think Sustainability on 2SER 107.3. So let's go back to permaculture. Now that we both know what it is. Now we're completely wrapped around it. Permanent agriculture. What sort of things are you imagining? So I'm guessing it's things like not over plowing soil. But what what more about even having systems like crops or oh, or, yeah. or certain vines or, or flowers? Well, flowers. Maybe. Flowers. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I guess crops that can keep growing and regenerating while not destroying the soil. Because aren't there certain crops that they, they do actually destroy the soil? There are some that do so. But yeah, I think it's more so about crops having a continual sufficiency food supply so that you don't have to, I think, keep grazing new lands or or whatever. You have a self-sufficient system that's close to home. And this next story is about a permaculture system in the middle of Africa. Is it, this is like the main town? What, what, the main Uh, town? No, that's not the main town. That's where the centre is. So I'm sitting down with filmmaker Gillian Lay in her office, and right now we're scrolling and clicking through the mountains of Zimbabwe on Google Maps. So what you're seeing here is a whole lot of these buns and swales, so down bits and up bits. Right, so the water won't come down. So the water will be held as it comes down. A couple of years ago, Gillian travelled to Zimbabwe to film a documentary called The Chikukwa Project, which is about bringing the practice of permaculture to the Shauna people of Chikukwa. So you said you're only there for about two weeks or so. Yeah, we were. And um, Do, so, were you were you pretty much filming the entire time, or were you? 
Oh, we were filming all the time. And the other thing was funny that I didn't tell you before is the electricity runs out. That's really? Uh, yeah. Well, it runs it, out of this. It's called uh, Zessa, I think. Oh, here's another funny story. But anyway, so you'd come home and hope that the lights would be on because then you could back up your card to your computer. Otherwise, right. you wouldn't have cards <laughs> to film with the next day. And mostly mm. we were in luck. It goes off and on during the day. But there's one tree at Chikukwa. Um, that they all has a really good line of sight to one of the mobile transponders, whatever you call them, relay stations through the mountains. And so everybody hangs their mobile phones on that tree. Really? Yeah, to get because they know they'll get a sing, signal oh, and they'll right. hear, it, hear it ring, you know. Mm. And um, someone once visited them and said, that's a fabulous tree. Can I get a cutting of that? <laughs> no, thanks. <laughs> well, no, it won't necessarily get you yeah. <laughs> mobile reception, but um, <laughs> they, they thought it might. Permaculture is essentially a sustainable practice of agriculture, meaning you work with the land instead of against it. A lot of this is utilising the environment to do things like grow crops more efficiently, craft basins into the land to hold water. And funnily enough, permaculture was invented by an Australian. It was originally Bill Mollison and he was joined by another person and they wrote a book, a permaculture manual. Um, they themselves thought it would be taken up by the people who produce the biggest carbon footprint, i.e. in the West, and they're rather surprised to see that it was taken up by people in developing countries, and they're very pleased to see that it's been so successful. And for a place like Zimbabwe, permaculture has been crucial. Deforestation and degradation of woodland has resulted in massive erosion over much of Zimbabwe's surface, where soils have been made infertile, with no means of growing future crops. If this deforestation doesn't stop, it's been estimated that Zimbabwe's natural woodlands could disappear by 2065. This has already caused massive problems for those who live there. They weren't producing enough. That There was malnutrition and hunger, massive, you know. So kids with pot bellies, kids hungry all the time, you know, mm. and adults. Was it, was, was it still like that in certain parts? No. I mean, I would say within the whole area under permaculture, no. And in fact, people are growing enough surplus that they could sell it and get money for textbooks for their kids and, you know, other things. No one has a TV. No one has a car. It's like a peace project. You'll find all the links. When you apply the permaculture principles, you see the principle, the link. The and we interviewed a shaman and his brother and uh, the chief's son, all about the sort of cultural practices and why they felt permaculture fitted with those. What was it like talking to the shaman? Oh, he wasn't very talkative. <laughs> but... Um, they believe not, you know, cutting down trees is bad for the spirits and um, not looking after the ground is bad, again, for the spirits and so on. So for them, it was already a fit with their religious beliefs. What was it like for you going over there and filming this new permaculture culture kind of unravel? Oh, it was just amazing. I mean, it's there's an awful lot of stuff growing and it's great to see the way things are growing, like, 
for example. They grow pumpkins and beans amongst the maize so that when the maize dies down, the pumpkins and beans take over. So they do a lot of what you might call companion planting of various sorts, plant herbs in the orchard so that that keeps the bad pests away from the trees and that they're they're people who can't afford fertiliser and GMO seeds and all that sort of stuff. So they get their own seeds and instead of using a permaculture yet they use the, the manure from the animals that they have so they corral them at night so they can collect the manure. Could you see from the... I don't know exactly how all the permaculture was necessarily set out, but could you see, could you see some of it from where you were travelling? Oh, look, you can see everywhere. You can look up and see, oh, that's terraced, they're using permaculture. And you can see when you look over a hillside, um, we've got some shots like that in the film, you know, there's the little settlement of houses, there's the next little settlement. So you can sort of see where people's, you know, little holdings were and you can see these lovely views of that. And their houses are really interesting too. They're mainly um, mud brick. All the water from cooking and from the bathroom goes onto the orchard, which is nearby. And so they grow vegetables and um, fruit near to the house and herbs right near to the house. And then further out, they have their cropping fields. And further out, there'll be orchards or natural areas, yeah. Mm, and then that's where a lot of the stuff is happening, that, that permaculture, like, I guess, community practice. And... Yeah. Another thing that they do, for example... They don't have hot running water or anything like that, but they dry their, they do the washing up outside and put it on a sort of wooden rack that they've made, you know, at waist height, and put all the clean dishes after washing there to dry in the sun, which gets rid of germs. Mm. So they've they've taught them a lot about um, sanitation, if you like, in the process. You know, so they adopt all these other principles. So it's lovely to see these racks of dishes dying, drying in the sun. Are you doing that now at home instead of <laughs> using I, detergent? Um, no, but I, <laughs> I I do it to some extent. I, you know, I have the sun actually comes into my sink, which I'm very grateful for. Mm. So quite often I just rinse stuff off and leave it for the sun to do the work. Yeah. <laughs> Earlier this year, Zimbabwe President Robert Mugabe declared a state of disaster in rural areas hit by a severe drought. Millions have been affected by food shortages, with their crops taking a massive toll. I should say, though, at the moment, there's a drought affecting the whole of Zimbabwe. Things, I think, at the moment are not so good for that reason, um, and they still need support. So with the drought, would that mean that they might potentially again have to adapt their permaculture systems? Yeah, yeah. Just as if we would have to do the same? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. So they're, they're, they're always tinkering, if you know what I mean, with the system to make sure it works as well as possible. And, I mean, there's, you know, issues like if population blows out, well, then can it support so many people? And I guess they're helped a bit by that because quite a few children decide to go off and have jobs in the city. So they're not always supporting an ever-increasing population, you know. Mm. But, yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to present it as if it's a complete perfect paradise they still have problems they have problems with the weather they have problems with each other it's not as if there are never never any stealing and never any murders and never anybody got running amok you know these things still happen but they do have ways to deal with them director of the chukukwa project Gillian lee 
So I know every week I kind of say, "Oh wow, Ellen! So you did this subject in high school? Like you <laughs> yeah. must have insight into I, this." But I, you, but you did textiles for a little bit. I did do textiles in year nine and ten. Um, My sister did textiles like as a major work alongside with like chemistry and physics and extension for maths and extension for English. Oh my! So she is actually the epitome of a maths. <laughs> And the creative like, brain. And the creative brain. You know, I think my sister's a little bit of anomaly. An anomaly, anomaly. in that she's kind of good at everything. But I guess there are instances where the two parts of the brain can work together. Well, that's what they're trying to push now in our new hashtag knowledge economy. Science, <laughs> technology, engineering, math. So you STEM subjects, but also art as well. Mm. Because in a lot of industries, creativity is quite valued. And maybe like think of the Sydney Harbour Bridge. There's definitely a bit of art and creativity in that but you obviously need a lot of maths to be able to construct a bridge like that logistically put it together and then you have the architectural design to make it appealing exactly so i think we've gone too long ignoring art in the place of stem but this guy that we're about to chat to is doing just that he's combining the two here's mark liu from the university of technology sydney for me, it probably began with sculpture. I really was into like anything with sculpture. Like it was hacking at something, a piece of stone. If it was clay, um, constructing things in the workshop, and fabric was just harder than other things because it was soft and it moved and it stretched and it was very unpredictable. If you think about making a, a clay or stone sculpture, it doesn't move. To build a fashion garment, you have to build this sculpture that's constantly moving all the time. It's very complex but <laughs> then why were you drawn to the world of fabric if it was so much harder was it that challenge it was the challenge mm. um it's the more challenging the more exciting and what were the ch first challenges that you were presented with well i knew science but i never actually did things like textiles in high school so i sort of figured it out for myself and i looked at science to find that background instead of looking in textiles so when I was generating it, it was all sort of from first principles, like you do in science. Mm -hmm. So, um, Like what principles? What were you doing? I would go on the very base level. So I'd look at like, a, I'm really into sort of things like carbon chemistry. So I'd look at it from a molecular structure. So if you think about um, fabric as cellulose, and then they have different kinds of fabric. So they've also got ones made out of petroleum. If you think about how does even dyeing work, it's these questions sort of pop up and you have to start answering them. And instead of going through sort of thinking about it from a clothing, no, take a pattern and cut it out and make this piece of clothing, I came at it from a slightly different angle. Mm. I'm just so interested in like the actual construction though. So you would sculpt essentially, or, or when you would have a template, you'd be like, oh, I'm going to sculpt this differently, approach this in a different way. That process like of actually putting something together, can you like run me through that? Okay, so there's sort of two ways that you can approach this problem. Um, one is sort of flat pattern making. So there are these sort of pre-made shapes that we know that will make a, a, gen a garment of a certain shape. There's also draping, which is here's a mannequin, we drape a garment on it, and we pin things together, cut around it, and then make a, we then flatten those shapes. And that, that's how we get these flat patterns. The more that I worked with the techniques themselves, sculpture and almost things like mathematics started to cross over because you're sculpting around the body in three dimensions and that abides by, the, by these sort of three-dimensional rules. Mm. And the techniques that, they were that were created were created sort of you know, in the 18th, 19th century and it's almost like they haven't updated the maths in like hundreds of years. It's imagine if you had like an iPhone and you'd never updated the software on it 
or you know, your computer, you never updated the software in hundreds of years. And then you're like, hey, this, could, is this the same <laughs> thing? You know, could we do better? Possibly. Using that example of the iPhone as well, when it comes to, I guess, installing maths into the way that you might construct something, how how is that because you can kind of like more accurately pinpoint, oh, this would then drape to look like that, or I can now have a digital representation of what I would want a garment to look like, and I know that it would work? When I developed things like zero waste pattern making, it was an understanding of how to fit pattern pieces together. At the time, I was sort of using brute force at the beginning, but then I started finding out these sort of mathematical principles that worked, things like optimization or using sort of mathematical strategies. And you take that same kind of theory and you bring it down to something as small as fashion design, mm-hmm. and you think about how do I optimize this piece of fabric to get the greatest result for the least wastage or... Is that what you were doing with the drape measure? You, you were making kind of these precise measurements? That was with the zero waste. The drape measure was a way of making better measurements. So it can measure the curvature of your body as well. How does it do that? How does it measure the curvature? So, um, actually, I have one here. <laughs> yeah, let's Is look at easy? it. Yeah. So I have a, a tape measure and it measures a linear measurement. Yeah. And that's what they do. This is a drape measure, and it can sit flat, and that's like it almost looks like a protractor when it's laid flat, and it has a little marker on it saying that there's 360 degrees on the surface. But say I want to measure something curved, so the curved part of the body, it will oh. become conical and shaped, and it will have a measurement. So I can actually take this measurement and create it. Um, a meaningful measurement that path makers can use to record curvature. And you just put it on your shoulder, but you can kind of put it like in you the waist put, area? Well, the waist like... actually creates a shape which is called a hyperbolic shape. So if you remember sort of the geometry that you did in high school, that mm. only applies for flat surfaces. Mm. So if you're doing stuff on curved surfaces, you need a completely different set. That, for me, that was a pretty big deal because path makers were trying to use flat geometry on curved surfaces, and that's why it just kept on failing. And the more scientific they tried to be, the more they failed because they didn't understand the, the science. science. <laughs> and so then you kind of get all these little points. So it's like you said, kind of like a protractor and has the different numbers and all that stuff around. Where do you input that and then c- collect all the info? The thing is, I needed to create something which was scientific, but it had to be something that was easy enough for fashion designers to understand. So these become sort of dart measurements. So this directly translates into a usable measurement that a path maker would use. Mm. So before, you would take a whole bunch of linear measurements around the body, and through a mathematical algorithm that was probably written in like the 19th century, I could just basically put a drape measure on the body, measure the exact angle that I wanted, and take the dart measurement directly off it, and it would be 100% accurate. Do you think that this is something that is going to be utilised further in the future, this, I guess, blend of geometrical graphings into fashion as well? Do you see that happening more? I think this is going to be a real gateway to technology because um, you may have heard of things like 3D scanners. The technology exists for a long time. So you think, if I can get 3D scanned, shouldn't I just be able to get perfectly fitting clothing all the time? (laughs) But the problem with a lot of these algorithms that are written for 3D scanners, they're written by engineers who don't know anything about making clothing. Even if you have this perfectly fitted garment, say you take a 3D scan and it's this perfectly fitted thing. It's like imagine when people get their wedding dresses fitted, they get a perfectly fitted garment for one day. As Mm. soon as they go and have lunch, 
you know, you drink a liter of water, you become one kilo heavier. <laughs> you eat a cheeseburger, that sticks, that's in your stomach. When I talked about sculpture before, I talked about this static sculpture. But in reality, the human is constantly moving. So the thing that I think is really important as well is we need to learn how to look at things that are constantly moving and changing shape. And that's why technology can kind of step in and give us more data to help solve these problems. Mark Liu from the University of Technology, Sydney. Thanks for listening to the show. Think Sustainability is produced with the assistance of the University of Technology, Sydney and 2SER. For more information about what you've heard today, head along to our website, 2SER.com forward slash Think Sustainability. You can also subscribe to us on your favourite podcast app. Just search for Think Sustainability. I'm Jack Morecambe. I'm Ellen Liebeter. See you next week.